Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, we are back. We are done with the Book of Mormon. We finished it up a few weeks ago, and man, time kind of got away from us. Christmas came along, and... I thought we had an extra week and we didn't. And that kind of threw me for a loop. <laughs> yeah, me too. You're like, hey, Shiloh, we need to record another podcast. <laughs> and we need to do it sooner than we thought. It's it's awesome, though. You know, I've been rereading Saints. I know you've, uh, you, we've both taught seminary doing this with church history. And, you know, I've got to have a little bit of an admission here because up until several years ago, probably five years ago, I didn't really care a lot for church history. You know, I was always like, ah, church history again, here we go. And because it was, for me, it was just like the same stories over and over and over again. But I don't know what happened about, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago. And and I've just, I can't get enough of church history and I absolutely love it. And, and I can't uh, get enough books and figure stuff out, but it's been absolutely fascinating. So I'm really excited for this next year to be able to kind of expound out some ideas and to see where this leads us. Well, there's a lot more available on church history now than there was, uh, say, even five, six years ago. Um, And a lot of this has been due to the Joseph Smith Papers Project. There's a lot of other stuff uh, going on um, that has pushed for history to be released and published and researched that was never researched or published before. And that's a whole like number 10 can of worms all by itself, right? <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get into some of those discussions. But uh, what's so interesting about beginning this discussion and what's going to be so different about uh, maybe this series of podcasts with Come Follow Me is that while we are – uh, dealing with uh, scripture as such, what we would call a, a, a one of the standard works, the Doctrine and Covenants. Within the text itself, there's not a solid narrative for us to follow. We have to pick up the the narrative from the chapter headings and from the associated historical context that we get from other sources, not from the text itself all the time. And so... Um, it, it's flavored in a much different way than our discussion of the Book of Mormon um, can be, because while the Book of Mormon, we can uh, we can actually speak a little more authoritatively, sort of in a paradoxical way, um, because at, at what we know is actually so limited, it's there in the text, and that's about it. Um, the Doctrine and Covenants, its context is much more recent history, right? <laughs> and yeah. so... There's a whole lot more um, under the surface here that um, that we can dig into, and it makes it much more rich, but also muddies the water quite a bit 
in terms of trying to establish a solid context, um, historical context for what we're discussing. And so even though it seems like um, we could, there's a, there's a lot more to say because there's so much, um, it can be difficult to sort of sift through it and have like a, a coherent, um, you know, picture. Uh, one very helpful thing the church has done though, is released their saints, their volumes of, of church history that, um, in my opinion, do a pretty decent job of bringing in all of the most up-to-date historical sur- sources and research that we have um, together in in this volume. So hopefully that is able to give us a, a pretty good context to, to move forward in in establishing that for, for the sections as we discuss them. Yeah, I think that's really important what you brought out, especially about the Book of Mormon, because we were following a narrative, we were following a story, and, and, and one story kind of bled into another story. And we don't have a lot of other sources to pull from with the Book of Mormon. It's just the Book of Mormon text itself, right? So we just have to keep on going back to that. But yeah, with these revelations that we're going to getting into, there's this whole background. And I think for me, for the longest time, one of the problems that I had was recognizing that the way that the church exists and operates now was not the way that it existed and operated in the 1830s when it first started. There's a lot of difference and that kind of the feeling and the temperament and even the way that the church was structured, it didn't even have apostles in 70 until what, 1834, 1830, I think 1835. And so it, it, this grew. And so one of the things I've had to learn is to leave my assumptions as to how things are now kind of where they're at now to be able to go back then and then to see how they came about and, and came forward. Because I think there are a lot of times we have false assumptions that we maybe don't even recognize. And so when we come into conflict with those false assumptions, sometimes it feels a little bit disjunct and disjointed that we feel like, uh, I know, I know some people have talked about feeling lied to that the way that I understand history now and the way that history has been then weren't the same thing. So yeah, for for me, one of the when I was going through and trying to get my master's in history, um, my thesis chair moved, and so I had to go on hiatus. <laughs> so, but when I was when I was studying church history um, as part of my master's program, one of the things that we talk about history a lot, and this is actually one of the, uh, an experiment I did with my seminary class when I was uh, teaching and we did Doctrine and Covenants, is this idea that there's no such thing as objective history. And this is a really hard concept for a lot of us to deal with. And it was one of the, the initial concepts that I, I had a knee-jerk reaction against it the first time I came to it, but that I, didn't, I didn't have to sit with it too long before I realized, well, yeah, there's, there's no such thing as objective, <laughs> objective history. Right. And, and the reason that's the case is because every, every single person who ever writes anything down has a particular bias whether or not it's a good bias or a bad bias or whatever that is, everyone has a bias. And even when you are a prophet type figure writing things down, there's going to be a particular bent and a particular way of looking at that ways that way and that thing. In fact, we're going to talking about section one and the context behind that. We're going to find out that the DNC very much has Joseph's fingerprint all over this. And the way that he revealed this and the way that it came out from Joseph's mouth and the way that he wrote it down a lot of people were like, man, that's kind of embarrassing. And we're going to find out uh, how that uh, that came about because Joseph very much did have his own flavor in, in revealing these things. 
And so one of the experiments I did with my, my seminary class when I very first started teaching is to get them to understand this point about there's no such thing as objective history. I took them outside and for three minutes, I had everybody have a notepad and a paper and record every single thing that they saw, every single thing that happened, everything, every single thing that they saw, and then to come back into the room afterwards and then to write down a bullet point of everything that it was, put their pens away and they just have their list in front of them. Now, obviously there were a lot of crossovers. There were a lot of people who observed the same thing, but it only took us like three people into a class of 15 to realize that every single person saw something different than someone else. And in fact, sometimes the way they saw it, they started to argue with each other. Like, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> and I was like, guys, <laughs> we were only two out here for three. And you're already arguing. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we were only doing this for three minutes. We were only doing this two minutes ago and we're already arguing about how this happened. <laughs> and so <laughs> history's hard because not only is it, maybe let's say the person who's writing it objectively wrote it down perfectly. Let's just make that a statement because if we don't want to have to say that Joseph was subjective in writing things down. Let's just say that he was absolutely perfect in writing it down. Well, I'm a subjective reader. I'm bringing my bias to it, right? So then we have the reader who brings their own bias to interpreting history. Then we have each generation as they flow into the next generation who begins to ask different questions because social contexts change and pressures change. And we, and that's why history is always evolving, that even though the same events happened, we're always trying to find different meaning in history of how that interprets and, and comes to us and what that means for us. So every generation has to ask different questions. So even though there are a dozen biographies of Joseph Smith, and there's some really good ones out right now, like from Richard Bushman with, with Rough Stone Rolling, there's going to be more biographies that come out about Joseph it's not like the biography has been written. And in fact, that's one of the things that I loved is that when I attended the Mormon Historical Association's yearly conference in, uh, in 2018 in Boise, Idaho, I was able to sit in a room and listen to the editors of Saints and to listen to how they edited it and, and the things that they had to look for and they were doing. And one of the things that they stressed over and over again was that they hope that the members will realize that saints is not the history of the church. It's not the end all history. It is a history that reflects the best scholarship and ability that we have of writing it today, but that things will come out. There might be things that get amended in here. There might be stories that we later find out or have to be told in a different way, but this is the best history that we have right now of what we can produce. So as far as scholarship is concerned, it's great for today's standards. But if it changes, you know what? It changes. And we're going to we're gonna have to deal with that. That's why we have DNC coming around every four years. <laughs> and every four years, there's new questions we have and new things to be able to tackle it. So it's, it's a good thing. And I'm excited about that. Yeah. I mean, another way to sort of formulate what you're saying here is that we often will make the assumption about history that history is defined as what happened. And that's not correct. History isn't what happened. History is what people record about what happened. And those are two extremely different things. I mean, you were talking about how if a historian is even 100% objective about what they've recorded, you know, 
<laughs> one point to make here is right, but their bias comes across in the fact that they chose to record those things and not others. Because there's literally an unlimited amount of information that could be recorded by a historian. They could record anything. Why are they choosing to record the things that they are recording? There's already bias built into the very fact that they're choosing what to record. And so you're you're, you're not going to get away from it. You have to treat it as history, not as what happened. Um, even And then when something gets recorded and you pass on to subsequent generations, uh, you have the meaning and context and um, regular uh, – usage of words change over time. And so a word that meant something in a certain context within a certain sphere a hundred years ago, when it's used today, has completely different connotations. And so really getting at the root of what they were implying, it can be more difficult. So, um, you know, that's just a problem of language in general, but it's a problem of history um, in the context of language because when we're trying to go back and find out, quote unquote, what happened, um, we have to uh, dig into the deeper meaning of those words within that historical context. Uh, one of the things, one of the simple things we did in seminary here um, in this context was to have a 1828 Webster's Dictionary. And so when we'd come across a word that's like, I don't know what that means, or why are they using that word? Um, it doesn't seem to make sense in this context. You go look it up in that dictionary and occasionally, not always, but occasionally you would see, oh, that word actually has these synonyms that are associated with it in 1828. Whereas today in 2020, we might have these different synonyms sort of, there's like this meaning drift that happens, um, of words. And so, uh, you kind of, have that little correction of, okay, this word actually means this in this context. Um, and that can be helpful uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants as much as it was in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I love that. That's that's a really great point, you know, just of how language does evolve and change and our meanings to those change. Another thing about history that I've always found valuable is that it its value for me really comes in in, in its identity, of how history forms and solidifies identity. And that's one of the most important reasons about even why we study history is that human beings are enamored with what has happened and how things have come about to that really affects the world that we live in today. So our entire Latter-day Saint identity is rooted in these stories of the past and that these stories happened then we liken them to ourselves and we find identity in that. Now, the formal scholarship word for that is myth. You know, when we talk about myth, I think we'll probably talk about that a lot through this year, but myth in, in kind of its everyday use is usually used as a story that is not true. You know, like the, the myth busters were always trying to find out stories that weren't true. And false. Yeah. False stories, right? And in, in its formal sense, however, that's not really what a myth is. A myth in its more formal sense, in, in, his, in history anyway, is when you take a story, and a story can be true or not true. But in this case, with church history, you know, these are stories that we believe are true and that have historical record as being true. And so a myth is when you take a story and it can be 100% true, and then you not only apply it to yourself, but you apply it to yourself to find moral principles and identity. 
So for instance, if I just gave the story of the first vision and I were to say, hey, you know, when Joseph Smith was 14, he ended up seeing God the Father and Jesus Christ. You know, that's like a historical fact. Now, if I'm going to try, try to draw a little bit of meaning out of that, I can say, well, if you exercise faith, then you have, you know, you can see God or whatever. If you, if you go to ask God and, and prove the scriptures like James 1, 5, you can go out and you can see God. And maybe you just want to pull that into more of a, a moral meaning. But the minute when that event means something to your personal identity that now because of that, not only is there a moral meaning to it, but there is a current personal identity that happens because of that event. Now we're treating it, as historians would say, as myth. So that myth can be true, it can be false. Now, we do this sometimes with stories that aren't true, and we find meaning in, in stories in, in like fiction and in other stories that we can find identity to. Uh, you know, look at the Harry Potter craze or look at the Lord of the Rings craze, right? You know, these are books that are fiction, but people draw personal identity from it, right? We still do that. So in this kind of way, one of the things that I think is fascinating is there is a study of uh, of what's called the hero's journey, and it was written by Joseph Campbell. And, and a lot of people know who Joseph Campbell is. A lot of people still don't, but he ended up writing a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And one of the things I think is interesting about this is that President Uchtdorf's recent conference talk where he talks about the hero and he talks about going on this journey and having an adventure and he brings in the Hobbit. He doesn't, I don't think Mm -hmm. he specifically mentions Joseph Campbell, but everything in his talk is Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. (laughs) So, so he's obviously read this. It's like, it's like using all of Joseph Campbell's catchphrases without actually saying Joseph Campbell. So you could tell he's probably been reading a little bit, but Joseph Campbell ended up having this idea where he recognized after he'd analyzed centuries and centuries and thousands of years of history and of tales and of stories that there was a same repeating theme in not only fictional stories and how we tell fictional stories, but in how we tell the stories of our history, that we tell history in the same pattern that we often write fiction. And so he, he writes this, uh, this book, The Hero with the Thousand Faces, and this is actually what George Lucas ends up getting a hold of, and he uses this pattern to create Star Wars. So this was actually one of the, the very more well-known aspects that, uh, <laughs> for those who geek out on Star Wars, this is, uh, this is kind of the backbone for the plot of Star Wars is this hero's journey, but there was 12 parts to it, and what I think is fascinating about it is that each one of these stages in, in the hero's journey dictate how we see a hero. And as I was going through studying the hero's journey years ago, I I just happened to be studying Joseph Smith at the same time. And I recognized (laughs) that all of the stories that we were talking about Joseph Smith, all the popular stories of Joseph Smith that we tell as a church are like a one for one correlation with the hero's journey. So every, like every step of the hero's journey are, are the major points in the stories that we tell of Joseph Smith's life. And once, uh, in, in Joseph Campbell's view, is once you've gone through that whole process, those 12 steps, then you're the hero. That, that's kind of like what the hero is. And it's fascinating because with all the stories we tell of Joseph Smith, we end up singing a song, Praise to the Man, where the chorus is, Death shall not conquer the hero again. Like, like, it's really blatant how we do this. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, just to go through it a little bit, um, of the 12 steps, you start off with the status quo, just with your hero, 
who has no adventure yet. You know, if you think in terms of like the Lord of the Rings, it's like Bilbo Baggins or Frodo before they've ever embarked on anything. They're, they're nobodies. There's no reason why you should pick them. There's no reason why they're, they should stand out. They're just living their life. And then the first step is that there's a call to adventure. Now, this is exactly what President Uchtdorf was talking about. This is what his talk was about, was that first step of the hero's journey is a call to adventure. In Joseph Smith's case, this is the first vision. The first vision comes out, Joseph is called to this adventure, and then he sits on this experience for a while. He doesn't really do anything about it. In his own personal history, and in, you know, in Joseph Smith, uh, Roughstone Rolling, and a lot of other biographies, and even in Saints, you know, he goes off, he's a young man. He has young men's follies, and he does what young men do. But then at that point, you need a mentor to be able to guide you back on the right path. So the second step is that you need assistance from a mentor. And in this case, this is Mor- uh, Moroni who comes. So the angel Moroni comes as a mentor. You come in, you end up um, mentoring him, bringing him back into the adventure. And then there is a departure from that adventure. And in this case, this is the lost manuscripts. You lose the manuscripts, you depart from your journey, you lose your path, you fall away, you think you're going to be destroyed, but then you're brought back. So then if once you're brought back, you experience trials is the fourth step, and then you have a new approach. So this, this whole step of how Joseph left Palmyra, and now he comes into Kirtland. And from Kirtland, the church now starts taking a new approach in sending missionaries down to Missouri and in, in trying to go to the Indians, and that falls through. And so there's this new approach that's coming in until finally the sixth step, you're halfway through the journey, is there's a major crisis. And so this crisis is what really challenges and starts to solidify the hero as the actual hero. So all of this, we have stories after stories after stories of Joseph going into Liberty, you know, like Liberty Jail, of Joseph's persecutions, of the saints' persecutions. And then we end up with the seventh step in, in, a, in a type of treasure where you begin to realize a lot of the, the effort that you've put into this crisis. And all throughout the DNC, we have the Lord promising, saying, listen, you're in the crisis right now, but if you keep ahead, you're going to have a lot of treasure waiting for you at the end. You're going to have, you're going to have this, these blessings waiting for you. And so then at this point, through the results of going through all of this crisis, in the, in the ninth step, there's a return to peace. And so that's kind of like the Nauvoo transition. So after all of the 1830 problems in Kirtland and Missouri, you finally have a little bit of peace in, in uh, Nauvoo. And from Nauvoo, you end up in, number, in the 10th step. It's called the new life, where now you, you experience a new life that you've created after all of your trials. And then you become firm in your resolutions. And that's the final step. And then from the resolution, this, the hero in every story typically will find a way that it's a self-sacrificial moment. So sometimes the heroes will live, but at the end, there's usually a moment of self-sacrifice. And so in that self-sacrifice, we end up coming into kind of a new immortal life. And this is where the hero's journey ends, where now it is the hero. And, and so all of these steps that we tell of Joseph Smith, and each one of these steps can actually have like a full hero's journey in, in each one of those steps. So we can really unfold this. But it's absolutely fascinating how we tell the story of Joseph Smith. Because church history, what we call church history and the year that we spend on church history, really comes in from about 1827 until about 1848. So it's like those, like, mm-hmm. it's like those, I don't know, those 21, 23 years is what we call church history. We, we don't really study anything after 1848 all, all the way down. Mostly revolves to, around Joseph Smith, yeah. 
it's it's all about Joseph Smith, right? And and the Doctrine and Covenants, and so um, it, and it's just fascinating because halfway through that uh, whole crisis journey um, is where we get the majority of the Doctrine and Covenants. The majority of the Doctrine and Covenants it comes in between 1830 and about 1835, 1836. So that's where the the overwhelming number of the majority of these. Uh, sections are going to come into play and we're going to get a lot of revelation through the crisis phase. And then it kind of dries up a little bit after that. So absolutely fascinating when we start to realize history as myth and that we, we participate in this every week in church and in every story that we tell and in every page that we flip and like saints, it's just, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to see it. It is. And, and specifically here, when we start getting into the discussion of section one, um, you know, the way the Doctrine and Covenants was compiled um, has really evolved uh, quite a bit over time. Um, it wasn't always called Doctrine and Covenants. I think the first iteration is called Book of Commandments. Um, originally, it was just uh, a bunch of random, maybe random is the wrong word, um, various revelations that had just been written down, handwritten on paper. Um sometimes by Joseph Smith, sometimes by others that acted as scribes for him. And these were were sort of collected, but they weren't organized very well. Um, if people wanted to share some of this with others, they had to get permission to see them and then copy them down and then take them elsewhere. They weren't published in a coherent form. And so there began to be discussion about uh, whether they should publish these. Um, but it all kind of came to a head when there was uh, a man named Ezra Booth who had uh, joined the church, um, but then had a falling out with Joseph Smith. Um, he had gone on a trip with him and, and others, and they'd gotten into arguments over this or that. And, um, uh, you know, there's more to get in on the history of that. And and we just won't have time to get into it here. But uh, if people want to read Saints, obviously, they're going to get into stuff like that. Um, there's plenty of sources on it. In any case, Ezra Booth, um, you know, decided to not like Joseph Smith anymore. <laughs> he had he had a beef <laughs> with him, so um, he he went off and at one point he started uh, publishing things about Joseph Smith and saying that he was lying about uh, the revelations that he had, that he was a con man that he was hiding revelations from people and that, you know, he had secret plans. Um, and, you know, this wasn't completely untrue. Um, Joseph Smith had made some mistakes and he also had some revelations from the Lord about what the saints were supposed to do uh, in building up Zion and their plans for Jackson County that were not public knowledge. And uh, people had concerns about making them public knowledge because they thought it would uh, create a problem for the saints in Missouri, which is exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> but they, they convened a conference of the elders and they had this discussion about whether they should publish these revelations um, so that they could kind of get ahead of this Ezra Booth thing. Um, and say, you know, this is what they actually say. Um, these lies that he's telling aren't true. This is what they actually say. And there was uh, some debate over whether they should do this, um, again, because they were concerned about um, 
some of these points of instruction that Joseph Smith had received that may not be um, accepted by people in Missouri. Um, didn't like the fact that the, that the saints were planning on mass moving there, right? And so <clears throat> anyway, they, they did decide to go ahead and publish them um, and they wanted some sort of a preface for it. And so they assigned, um, I think it was uh, Oliver Cowdery, William McClellan, um, Sidney Rigdon. I think those three, I want to say. Um, Saints talks about this. They assigned them to write a preface. And so they agonized and, and argued over uh, writing a preface and couldn't come to an agreement on, on what to write. And so then they go to Joseph Smith and they say, hey, we need a preface for this book of commandments. We're going to publish uh, what should, you know, ask the Lord what we should do. So Joseph Smith goes to the Lord and then the Lord gives him section one. <laughs> and, um, I, I thought that was interesting how that how it kind of all played out because they spent all this time agonizing and arguing over something that um, apparently they could have just asked the Lord for, you know, and he would have provided um, but even after they got section one, um, they still argued about whether they should use it because um, as we see, uh, it's sort of alluded to, to here in verse 24, it says, these commandments are of me and were given unto my servants and their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. Now, this um, is specifically sort of uh, going after the reservations that uh, some of the elders had about publishing them. And the res these reservations were the, on the along the lines of Joseph Smith's language not being formal or um, uh, pretty enough, I guess you could say, grammatically right. a little rough. Uh, maybe his vocabulary wasn't uh, very smooth. And so uh, they were embarrassed about publishing these as, quote unquote, the word of the Lord, because they didn't sound formal and flowery and polished enough. Um, so this, again, this was sort of the the discussion or jab, if you want to say at that, it sort of called that out, so to speak. Um, and it's a good way to address what they're saying that uh, it, it kind of goes back to our discussion that we had in the Book of Mormon podcast. Um, where Moroni is saying, hey, you know, Lord, I'm I'm worried about uh, our language. You know, we fumble because of the language. People won't uh, won't believe what we're saying. Um, and the Lord says it's not about you, Moroni, right? <laughs> so it's a it's a little bit here of a uh, along those lines, I see. Yeah, that's a great point about Moroni, because when we start to realize that these prophets, they have insecurities. They're human beings. They're, they're real people. And I think a lot of the times we think that God just kind of dumps the information onto them and that they automatically just get this. But one of the things we're going to learn is just how much effort Joseph had to put in as a young man to understanding the Urim and Thummim. Like, I mean, he had to go through several years of preparation where he was kind of stumbling and falling along the way. And every year he had to come back and report to Moroni and Moroni kept on chastising him and telling him to get his business together. Until finally the last year came around where Moroni is like, listen, this is it or you're done. And so Joseph finally got the plates and 
It took him a while. It took him a long time to try to figure out how all of this worked. And then once it clicked for him, you know, he went through it pretty quick. And, uh, and after he had had that long period of time after the 116 pages, but what I really love too is, uh, is section one ties in really nice with section 67 because 67 is really where they're trying to get Joseph Smith to maybe go easy on these revelations, maybe not publish him, right? Because they are, they are, they're really worried about being embarrassed because he's not the best orator in how this is coming out. And what I think is beautiful about this that we can very much learn something about is that it's not like God is giving the dictation of each word, that this is exactly the word that God wants, you know, that specific word there. You know, it's a very Islamic way of looking at like the Quran, right? Where like every single word is divinely dictated that the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments kind of a thing. But basically because of the history of section one and of section 67, we know that there is very much a flavor of Joseph Smith that is coming out in these revelations. A lot of this is Joseph Smith and that's fine. And what we are trying to do then is figure out, okay, where is the voice of the Lord? What's Joseph Smith? And to be able to kind of grasp, you know, wrestle with that a little bit and to see, all right, what can we pull from that? What can we understand? Because Joseph is a man with his own strengths, with his own weaknesses. And we learn that, that literally God comes right out there. And I love that she brought in 24, that these were given to his servants in their weaknesses. You know, he's just, God's coming right out there and saying that, that this is coming into their manner of language. These are coming through in their understanding. Of course, this is going to have Joseph Smith all over it. And so, yeah, I mean, right there, 24 is is such a powerful verse in how we start to recognize the different flavor of how revelations come about. Because a lot of the times we go through and we see different prophets and presidents of the church and, and even in the scriptures, right, with uh, with different characters in the Book of Mormon and in, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, each character kind of has a different flavor. And that's not, I don't think that's an aside. I think that's kind of the very point. You know, I, I remember moving from, uh, you know, until I moved to Bakersfield where I currently live, uh, my wife and I, we moved around a lot. And in fact, I think in, you know, in 10 years, I think I'd added up that is something like 23 or 24 times we'd moved in 10 years. And, and so there was a lot of bishops we met. <laughs> I met a lot of bishops and in that whole process, I don't know. It was one of those things. I don't know why I, I, I always ask this, but I always wanted to have a testimony of the bishop that I came into that ward for. And so the first Sunday of always coming in to meet these brand new bishops, I'd always ask for a testimony of that bishop because each ward is different. Each ward has a different vibe. It has a different way of doing things. It's like its own little community, right? And, you know, based on the town, the city, I'd move out to, ten, I was in Tennessee for a time. Then I moved to Arkansas. I've been in Bakersfield. I've moved wards in Bakersfield. And even doing that, the wards are different. Anybody who's ever moved a ward knows that the tone and the feeling is different in each ward. And I started to notice that some of these bishops, I knew, man, I could be really, really, really good friends with this person, like personally. And some of these bishops, I was like, man, we would never be friends outside of church. (laughs) Right. And it's just, and there were just these different personalities, but it was fantastic because I started to recognize over and over and over again with these different patterns of bishops that the bishop that was chosen matched the needs of the ward at the time they were there. And 
that was that was a really powerful a really powerful witness for me in my life to be able to recognize that and i see that a lot of the times when i read joseph smith about why the lord picked joseph smith about the the personality traits about his temperament about who and what he was that the lord needed for him to do this and then again for joseph smith i'm, I'm sorry for brigham young because brigham young <laughs> is not joseph smith right nope <laughs> these two these two people are couldn't be more different and so I, I think verse 24 there is absolutely beautiful, simply for that fact. It really gets us into some good conversations. And we're going to have this conversation, I know, a lot through the year as we start to really pull and say, you know what, I think that might be Joseph Smith. I think this is what the Lord's trying to say. I think that's Joseph Smith. And here's some other evidence for, to corroborate that. And, uh, and I think we'll be doing that quite a bit. Yeah, I think so. Um, the you know, like you were saying, sort of the personality of Joseph Smith comes out here in the Doctrine and Covenants. That's an important thing to recognize, and like you said, I think a good way to look at it is sort of wrestle with because Scripture. So often, I think we unfortunately look at Scripture in this sort of because we call it the Word of God, right? We say. We have this article of faith that says we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. And we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. And we call scripture the word of God. And I think uh, sort of the implication in that is is as if it is uh, the Lord himself using the his own language to us. Um, and that is not... Uh, what section one here teaches us, and in fact, we see it a, a lot in scripture, and we can pull this out if we're if we're really uh, realizing it that he doesn't use his own language; he uses the language of the prophet that he's speaking to. And if we look at our own experience with revelation of personal revelation, isn't that how it happens? The Lord speaks to us in our own language. He doesn't speak to us in a language we don't understand. He uses words right. we understand in a context we understand and in a way that we understand it. And he uses uh, experiences and, and, and everything to our understanding. And so that's the way a prophet is going to convey the message as well. And so he belongs, he or she, uh, you know, whatever context you're looking at here, Prophets belong within the context that they're speaking. Um, and scripture needs to be read in that context, but more importantly, it needs to be read for what it makes us think and feel by the Spirit, and not necessarily um, getting stuck on what it actually says, but again, what we what is revealed to us as we are studying it because those are the things that the lord is speaking to us individually this kind of goes back to uh sort of the contemplation podcast that uh the revelation that we receive through study of the scriptures um is more about what the spirit teaches us than what the words actually say on the page Man, that's that's such a good discussion too. I, I don't think we have that discussion enough as to like what is scripture, and how is scripture made, and how do we adopt scripture 
I think that's such an important conversation that we're going to start to have this year because we do have this really unique opportunity as Latter-day Saints in our modern age to see the formation of a religious movement, to see how a faith tradition starts, to see how this whole thing begins, and we have it documented, and we have the Book of Mormon coming about, and we have the Doctrine and Covenants coming about. We have very unique ways that our Christian counterparts don't have. You know, in the Bible alone, the earliest you can go back to is in the you know fourth, fifth century of how the Bible came a bit. You know, everything for the first five hundred years about how the Bible came to be, and then the history of how the Old Testament came to be before then. And you know, it's still kind of hotly contested with uh, certain books that are accepted in one Bible and not the other. But how is Scripture made? How is Scripture chosen? How how are these things included and not included? And yeah, and it's when you take the personality of the person talking. Yeah, all, all of that's good stuff. One of the things I, I was going to bring up here, and Ben and I had sent this over to you before, but in section one, you know, this was written in 1831. So this is this is November of 1831. We're now almost a year, well, it's about a year and a half after the formation of the church. Mm-hmm. There's already been a number of revelations given, right? You know, at least 67, you know, given um, up until this point. And they wanted to formally put all of these revelations into print so that there's more of a, a regulation. And so the preface here is really from God. It's really God's opening up of the entire rest of the Doctrine and Covenants. And it was kind of by stupid, dumb luck that I was reading, because I, I wanted to get ahead when I was getting ready to teach seminary for the Old Testament. I was so super excited. I've wanted to teach the Old Testament forever. <laughs> and this time this this time around is when President Nilsson ended up switching the seminary program to be on the same schedule as Come Follow Me. And so just as I was gearing up to teach Old Testament, uh, it was changed. And so we did, you know, a, a fall of the Gospels, of the four Gospels. We did the four Gospels again. And then we started over the year last year with Book of Mormon. So I ended up teaching the four gospels twice and the first half of the book of Mormon <laughs> a second time, but I never got to teach the old Testament. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, I'm really excited for next year. Cause we're going to be doing the old Testament next year. But when I was preparing and studying for that, there was a podcast that I ran into that I absolutely love and adore. And it's a really great beginner's guide for the old Testament, um, by a guy named Dr. Sheldon Greaves. And I don't know, there's 50 or 60 different little podcasts they are about 20 minutes a piece. And he still teaches at uh, Stanford's Stanford University and they're continuing education. And, and he's got his background in the middle, in the Middle East studies and in, uh, and in Old Testament studies, but these little podcasts, they're absolutely fantastic. Uh, you sit down for 20 minutes, he'll lead you over. Um, he's got a very soothing voice. You just listen to him and you're like, oh yeah, it kind of puts you into a trance. But when, uh, I think it's like the eighth podcaster, so I'll have to look again where he starts talking about Abraham and the covenants that God made to Abraham. And so the first five minutes of the podcast, he really opens up about what covenants are. Now, if you can imagine just from a Christian perspective, the word covenant doesn't really come into the, into the conversation a whole lot. But as Latter-day Saints, I don't know if we can get through a single church meeting without the word covenant coming up. It's just, it's a word we use all the time, like covenants, this and covenants, that and covenants everywhere. And, you know, walking the covenant path and keep and staying true to your covenants and making covenants and going to the temple to make covenants and like covenants are everywhere for us. We are a very covenant oriented people. In fact, we're talking about the doctrine and 
covenant. So in that, he goes through and he starts talking about how, you know, we've got to really learn about this ancient concept of covenants. And and he he started talking about to his Christian audience that, you know, I know this isn't a word that you're really familiar with. And <laughs> he gets into trying to define covenants. And as a Latter-day Saint, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, he just talked about this for last Sunday and the Sunday before that and like five years before that. This <laughs> <You know? laughs> is something we're, we're always talking about. And, um, but anyway, he brought up this amazing story that I had never heard before. But they, in, in the 1950s, there was a scholar by the name of George Mendenhall, and he was actually studying international treaties in the ancient city of Mari in Syria. And it was this guy in the 1950s who, wanted, who ended up, while he was going through and analyzing all these ancient treatises that were formed in Syria and in, in the, the Middle East— that he started to identify a pattern about how these treatises were written legally, that they were actually legally in uh, written in a particular way that, uh, and, and this pattern had, uh, had been repeated. So then he ended up going over into the, the Bible and into the, uh, into Babylonian religious texts. And he found them over there. And then he came over into the, into the Holy Bible, into the Torah into the Jewish scripture. And he started finding them there, the same pattern. And so it, to simplify things, he broke them down into f- six different parts. There's like six major themes that are in ancient covenants. And and so if there's ever two parties that need to make a covenant, they're going to write it down. There's going to be six things. The first the first theme that is in every covenant, written covenant in the in the in the in the ancient Middle East, is there has to be a preamble. There has to be a preamble. There has to be a section at the very beginning of the covenant that identifies at least one of the parties of the covenant. It tells you who who's actually the person who's making the covenant. Who's there? Who are they making it with? Usually if there's two parties, three parties, this is that part of the preamble about why the covenant is made, who's it being made with, etc. In part two, there's usually a brief historical prologue. And this is going to kind of describe the history and the relationships between the two parties all up in the time to the time this covenant's being made. And it speaks as to the main reason why this this covenant or this contract is being made. So you have part one with the preamble, part two with your brief historical prologue. Now, part three is really where you're kind of getting into the nitty and gritty of what the covenant actually stipulates. What are the terms? So this is where the terms are come out and they're unfolded. And this is where um, all of the all of the different things that are incumbent upon each parties are stated. The fourth part is basically a provision for the deposition of the text. So if the text is going to be written, well, where is it going to be written? Who's going to get a copy of it? Um, How is it going to be disseminated? Um, Is it going to be read? You know, in in certain places back in ancient uh, Israel and in in the ancient Middle East, you would pull out the covenant and you would read it officially once a year, twice a year, or at certain official capacities. So when is this going to be shared? How is it going to be shared? Who's going to get a copy of it? Um, So basically, all the provisions for the deposition of the text, where is this going to be available? In part five, there is a list of witnesses to the transaction. So all of the people who've witnessed this transaction or who are part of this transaction to be called upon to basically help enforce this contract. And in a lot of times in the ancient Middle East, this could be a set of gods or of angels or of divine divine representatives. Anyone that is chosen to be the witness 
to this uh, to this has to be labeled in this area, and they're also going to be expected to try to help enforce that uh, that contract or that covenant as well. And finally, in uh, part six, there is a list of uh, blessings that if the covenant is followed, then certain blessings or certain good things will happen. But if it's not, it gives the, all of the lists of the cursings that are going to happen. Okay. So basically, just to recap, we have the preamble, we have a brief historical prologue, we have the actual terms and provisions, then we have where the text is going to get disseminated, and then we have a law of witnesses or a list of witnesses for the transaction, and then finally, all of the places where um, a list of the blessings if it's followed, a list of the cursings if it's not. And so as I was, when I, when I very first listened to this podcast, and this was, this was whole, this whole thing was laid out my jaw dropped to the floor because I had just been reading in Doctrine and Covenants and I just read section one. And as, as I was listening to Sheldon Graves talk in this podcast, and, and I'll, I'll post the link to the podcast in the, in the article below for anybody who wants to listen to it. But as I was listening to it, I was like, my goodness, every single one of those elements is in section one. Section one is literally called the preface. So in verse five, the Lord literally comes out and says, behold, this is mine authority and the authority of my servants and my preface unto the book of commandments, which I have given them to be published, O inhabitants of the earth. So literally right out the gate, the Lord says, this is the preamble. Um, The brief historical prologue where like a history of the relationships between the two parties and the whole reason for the covenant we have the Lord coming in, talking to his church and talking to the islands and the peoples from afar and how we're going to gather all these people together. And so all of a sudden we start to have all of the people of the covenant listed, basically, oh, inhabitants of the earth. So you have the Lord, the church, the inhabitants of the people, you have all the islands of the sea. This is for everyone. Then the entire section, the entire verse, uh, section one is basically part three. It's, it's the whole thing goes in and out of all the provisions of the covenants that you're going to hear about. Part four comes along and we have this kind of scattered in different places, but we have it like, for instance, in, in verses eight and nine, and really I say unto you that these things will go forth, bearing these tidings into the inhabitants of the earth to them. Power is given to seal both on earth and, and in heaven and the, unbe- and the unbelieving and the rebellious you know, this is also a little bit of uh, part six. Yea, verily to seal them up into the day when the wrath of God shall be poured out upon the wicked and the remaining. So so these things are going to be shared everywhere. Um, also, we have another provision for part four in the end. Search these commandments for they are true and faithful and the prophecies and promises which are in them shall all be fulfilled. So we're commanded to actually partake of and to, and to read these texts ourselves. So when this text is given to us, we're commanded to read it. So it's, it's a text that's given for everyone. Then in part five, we have a list of witnesses and transactions. And this, this goes really all over the place, but this is really where God, like in verse four, where it says, and the voice of warning shall be unto all people by the mouths of my disciples. So now we're bringing in lists of witnesses and people who are going to proclaim this text and to, and to enforce this text. Um, and, and we get into Joseph Smith and whether or not, and then in the very last verse, what I, the Lord, I've spoken, I've spoken, I excuse not myself, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by my own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. 
So we have that whole thing coming along. And then part six with a list of the blessings and the covenants have followed. This is also scattered all throughout section one as well. So I, I just, it was absolutely amazing to me to go through each one of those parts and to, and to write them in the margins of my scriptures to recognize that all of these ancient patterns that were discovered in the 1950s that exist in ancient records are all here in this text that was made and written down in 1831. So Ben, when you talked about how those three men just decided to go in, they couldn't get the revelation, they couldn't get the, the, the preface made, and then they went to Joseph, and Joseph's like, okay, well, here you go. And he gives us section one from the Lord, right? He's 25 years yeah, old. The, he's <laughs> he's, he's like, 25 Yeah, here you old. go. Here's a perfectly... Um, formatted and, uh, you know, includes all of the aspects of an ancient covenant, which, by the way, won't be discovered and scholarly written about for more than 100 years. But here it is. <laughs> but here it is. Here you guys go. <laughs> and, you go. And that really does, for me, it's add such a day. flavor to <laughs> all in one day, right? All in a day's work. But just that whole thought of like section 76 or 67 to realize that Joseph Smith was not an educated man. Yes, he gave for the people embarrassingly bizarre revelations, right? And, and, and the verbiage of some of these things, even in his day, people are like, what? But look at what the Lord did. Look at how this was revealed to him. Look at what comes in spite of his weakness, See, it's, it's not that God hits us and connects with us in our strengths. The more I've come to think about it in my life, it's in my weaknesses where the Lord connects with me the most. That's really where the Lord is added with me, is in my weaknesses. And it, the man, that's a really hard one to sit with. Because when I really think about my weaknesses and the things that I struggle with, the things that I wish I was better at, the things that I wish didn't come, you know, frailties that didn't come so easily to me. And this whole story that we've just talked about is really another one of those testimonies that God is there in our weakness. And not necessarily that he's going to make our weakness be strength. You know, we have that in Ether, right? Ether 12 about how our weaknesses will become strengths. But a lot of the ways I've noticed that my weaknesses never really sometimes get better. Sometimes my weaknesses are just my weaknesses. But still in my weakness, great things are brought to pass. And that, I think, is just an absolutely phenomenal principle to learn. Yeah, I mean, that's powerful in the context of, of Joseph Smith, particularly because, you know, historically speaking, when we're going to compare him to all of the the previous prophets from Scripture, we we know a lot more historically about him. So a lot more of his weaknesses are laid bare for us um, by his contemporaries, by himself, by um, the scripture scriptural um stuff that we have out of the Doctrine and Covenants. So uh, we, we have to wrestle with that, like you've talked about. You know, uh, this section one, beyond the way that it's sort of uh, formatted uh, and and how it fits into that uh, ancient covenant treatise, um, you know, one point about that is is that you know that kind of that kind of denotes the Doctrine and Covenants in one way as a very um, Old Testament type document. Um, now it's not uh, it's not strictly speaking Old Testament like, but um, a lot of the uh, the way that it's uh, laid out 
um, a lot of the discussion that happens, particularly around covenants, just like you were talking about, um, is very uh, flavored by uh, Old Testament themes. And in fact, uh, I'm sure we're going to get into discussing this, um, that's actually uh, a large part of what ends up uh, finding its way into the culture of the church. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, But I think it's interesting to point out, you know, that, that... Section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, this this founding document, so to speak, of the church, um, fits this pattern of of this Old Testament type of covenant treaty, uh, because so much of how the church uh, then forms itself and moves forward uh, follows a lot of other Old Testament patterns and 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 culturalisms as well. Um, so again, I you know I know we'll get into discuss about that uh, more, and you probably have more to say about that. But um, section one has a lot of um, nice little gems in it as well. Um, there's some some great little things in here. Um, particularly, I, I thought uh, verses 17, um, 18, 19, 20. These are some of the most interesting to me. He says. Wherefore, I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and spake unto him from heaven, and gave him commandments. You know, in the in the verses previous to this, there's a, a bit of the implication that it's the Lord that is uh, threatening the people when he comes, you know, uh, the unbelieving and the rebellious and his wrath poured out upon the wicked, Right. Um, that it's the Lord that's going to be the one destroying. You know, we talk about his sword in verse 13. Um, but here, actually, um, there's the implication that the Lord is is simply warning the people about something that he knows will come uh, because of their wickedness. Not that he is personally uh, causing it to happen, Um but the opposite, he knows about it and is warning and then giving us a way to prepare for it. And um, then it moves on in verse 18, and also gave commandments to others that they should proclaim these things unto the world and all this that it might be fulfilled, which was written by the prophets. Um, this is an interesting point to me, and I know you have uh, some more to say about this as well, Shadow, that... The Lord's work is a lot bigger than Joseph Smith, right? Um, and I know that as a church and culturally and, and you know, going along with this hero's myth and everything, we, we like to make Joseph Smith out to be this, you know, the prophet of the Lord, you know, um, dispensation head, right? This, this grand larger than life figure as such. Um, but here, uh, I, I, verse 18 is interesting because it kind of tells me that, yes, the Lord called Joseph Smith, and he also did other stuff too. <laughs> that, um, you know, and, and Joseph Smith's just a part of it. Um, uh, but the Lord's work is is going, is rolling forward all over the place, and he's getting it done in, in multiple ways. Um, and that Joseph Smith is a part of that, but there's more going on. And so I thought that was interesting. Verse 19, the weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty and strong ones. 
that man should not counsel his fellow man, neither trust in the arm of flesh. And verse 20, probably my favorite verse in this section, but that every man might speak in the name of God, the Lord, even the Savior of the world. And um, this, these are listed purposes, and, and it goes on into more. Purposes for the restoration, or for the Lord calling Joseph Smith, for the Lord giving him revelations. And this one here is, is just really powerful to me. That every man might speak in the name of God, the Lord, even the Savior of the world. You know, this is sort of a, an allusion to an encounter to taking the Lord's name in vain, right? It's that every person, when they speak and what they do, can be in his name because they've taken upon themselves his name and they actually are following uh, Christ and seeking to, um, to emulate his life. Um, and so I, I see that verse 20 is, is pretty powerful. Yeah, I love that. I love that a lot. And, th- and that reminds me of like uh, Moses when it says that he would that all men should be prophets. And, and, and to talk about God, that brings in that every man might speak that name of God. I love that you brought in the kind of the antithesis there. I think a lot of the times we think that taking the name of God in vain is that, you know, the, the expletive that we use in, in using, you know, repetitive names of God and not reverence. But when we, I, I, the minute I realized this, and I think it was, uh, I don't know, maybe an institute or a seminary teacher, I don't remember who was talking when I first recognized, recognized this, but it was that the things that we say in the name of God and that we think that God supports has far more to do with taking the name of God in vain than using it as an expletive. And that really impacted me. So yeah, I like that you you brought that in. On the on the verse here that he's talking about giving commandments to others, there's two quotes that I had. In fact, I was just reading yesterday, and I posted it on social media on a group that we uh, that we're both in. But it's from B. H. Roberts. You know, he when he was a twelve apostle, and he was giving it's it's written in the defense of the faith and the saints. But he says, while the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is established for the instruction of men, and it is one one of God's instrumentalities for making known the truth, yet he is not limited to that institution for such purposes, neither in time nor place. God raises up wise men and prophets here and there among the children of men or of their own tongue and nationality, speaking to them through the means in which they can comprehend. All the great teachers are servants of God, among all nations and among all ages. They are inspired men, appointed to instruct God's children according to the conditions in the midst of which he finds them. Unquote. Man, I found that quote, and I read that, and I just almost made me cry. I just to realize the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God that God's work and glory really is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men. And I think that is so much more universal than what we want to give it credit for. That we really do, I find, want to put God into a box of our own understanding. Every faith tradition does it. Culturally, we do it too. And I think that's really where repentance comes in. The Jews did it in Jesus's day. That's why, especially in these podcasts, Ben, We've emphasized the need for repentance over and over and over again, but the need for repentance specifically in the way that the Bible dictionary defines it, in learning to have a new and fresh view about God, about oneself and about the world around us, learning to see God in a new way, letting, letting our ideas of God 
maybe let go of them a little bit so that God can reveal greater truths to us about who and what he is. And that's where I think verse 16 is so powerful. When Jesus comes in, he says that the world, they seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world and whose substance is that of an idol, which waxeth old and shall perish in Babylon, even Babylon the great, which shall fall. That moment there when he says, every man walketh in his own way after the image of his own God. Man, he's he's not messing around with that. <laughs> that's not I mean, that's not mincing words there. He's he's literally telling us that we are walking around having our own ideas of God and that we are not coming to understanding who and what he really is. We are in ways that we've described it before in like the beatitude language, we're living in our own egos, we're living in our own ideas of God and we project our insecurities onto God as though that's God. And then when we live into that world that we've created, we feel self-justified that, oh yeah, well, see, that is God. And that's one of the reasons why I love that quote from Thomas Merton so much when he says that so much depends on our idea of God, yet no idea of him, however pure and perfect, is adequate to express him as he really is. Our idea of God tells us more about ourselves than about him. And that's, that's the reason why we have repentance. It's to learning to to let go of our own egos and our own projections about God, to then let God reveal who he really is. Look at what he, I mean, I can't read section one. And I love that you, how you brought that up, Ben, that the Lord is not sitting here saying, I'm going to cause all these things. And there is that kind of that flavor here in the first half of it. But once we get to 17, when he says, knowing the calamity, which should come upon the heavens of the earth, not I'm out here causing all this stuff, but this stuff is happening. And we've talked about the wrath of God before in the previous podcasts as God's letting go and letting things happen that's going to happen. And the wicked, seeing this, see this as the wrath of God. But the righteous just see God being God, and and they will always see God in God's mercy. And so when we see this, that God is coming forward proactively, He's, he's rushing towards us, he's trying to get us to understand these things and to come into this relationship with us. You see the the tenacity of of God in trying to bring this into that mystery with Him. You know, there's this uh, Martin Buber who said that the atheist staring from his attic window is often nearer to God than the believer caught up in his own false image of God. I mean that that's harsh. <laughs> that's pretty. <laughs> that's harsh. I mean to say that again that that the atheist who's staring out his window can have a clearer concept and relationship with God than a believer in God who's caught up in his own false image and false notion of God. That sometimes simply belief in God is not the true point. It's, it's coming into a relationship of who and what that God really is. You know, this gets into like the lectures on faith, and, and I think it's lecture one where it says that it's, we can know the nature of the God in which we worship, we can come into that relationship. Now, for me personally, I've never got, I've never come into that relationship through earning it, through qualifying for it. But it's come to me, and I've I've had that experience with it when I've simply let everything go, and I've let God be God. You know, you know those moments we talked about, like Moroni and his his fear of, of writing the plates and and of the people not accepting accepting those records. 
it's it's letting that go. It's letting my ego go. The the ideas of my failures and of letting God simply to be God. And and I've had those moments in my life where he's like, Shiloh, you just need to be Shiloh. And I'm like, but God, I want to be so much more than who and what Shiloh is. And God says, listen, I created you for who and what you were. I'm like, yeah, but I want to be so much, I want to be so much different. And it's in those moments that God comes down and he says, no, I, I made you to be who and what you were. This is who, this is who you are and this is what you are. And, and in those moments, it's such a relief that God doesn't need me to be more in what than I am. He just requires me to truly be, step into my true self and to get rid of that false self notion that I have as I repent and I come into a better relationship with God, I begin to see myself more clearly of who and what I really am. And in that relationship, in that, in that movement, and in that uh, kind of the conversation with God, man, there's a lot of beauty and peace there. You know, I see that kind of spelled out in these verses um, 25 through 28. He says, And inasmuch as they erred, it might be made known. And inasmuch as they sought wisdom, they might be instructed. And inasmuch as they sinned, they might be chastened, that they might repent. Um, and inasmuch as they were humble, they might be made strong and blessed from on high and received knowledge from time to time. So back to verse 27 here. You know, we've talked about this word chastened before, and and often uh I think the synonym that we pull up or that I often will knee jerk reaction pull up for the word chastened is punish. And, um, I don't see it that way anymore. I, I know that that is not a correct synonym of this word that doesn't describe what the Lord is actually doing because that doesn't fit my experience with him. Um, when I've sinned and the Lord chastens me, so that I repent has nothing to do with punishment, has everything to do with bringing me into an understanding of, of who I really am and who he really is. And, and once I see that, realizing that this sin really isn't, you know, you were talking about this, that, that sin is really part of my false self. It's not part of my real self. And so the chastening is, is the getting rid of that is the the um the burning away of that thing the dying of that false self the if we go over here back to verse 13 it says his sword is bathed in heaven and it shall fall upon the inhabitants of the earth you know we talked we've talked before about the sword of the lord being this symbolic thing that cuts away that which is the wrong the false self um, and being bathed in heaven, goodness, we go into a discussion about the powers of heaven, right? And how that comes to be. Well, how does he do that? He does that through the power of the priesthood and this persuasion and long suffering, um, love unfeigned. And that, that all fits into the Lord's chastening, what he really means by chastening and, and how that comes about in, in terms of our repentance. So I like how what you were talking about really is spelled out in those verses right there. Um, chastening, repenting, uh, being humble, being made strong and so forth. 
that's a really great way to pull that in. In fact, not a few, not just a couple days ago, but for Latter-day Peace Studies on the Facebook page, and if any listeners haven't checked it out, go check out uh, the Facebook page. Uh, but we had a, an Advent celebration where Lindsay, our social media guru who does all of our uh, all of our online content, she had this idea of doing an Advent uh, kind of commemoration in a way that we can come into and and uh, and incorporate Advent into our Christmas uh, season. And so from the Sunday just after Thanksgiving until Christmas, we celebrated a new word of Jesus Christ every day. And so Lindsay and I kind of broke up our our workload and she would write half the time and I'd write half the time. And I was able to get the opportunity to write for the name Prince of Peace, which we published and put up there on December 24th. And as I was going through and I was writing that, it was, it was such an amazing opportunity to do that because I had no idea what was going to come next. In fact, I was messaging uh, Lindsay and I was messaging a few other people. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm writing this thing about the Prince of Peace and I, I don't know where I'm going to go next with it. But it just kind of wrote itself. And what you said, Ben, really stood out because of, of a, a particular phrase here. Because the Lord, when he comes in Matthew 10, he says, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I came to set man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So this is Matthew 10, 34 and 35. So my question was, how are we supposed to take this verse? And how are we supposed to believe that Jesus is the Prince of Peace when he's specifically saying that he didn't come to bring peace and that he came to bring a sword to set people at variance with each other? And, And in this, I found a little bit of evidence in John 14, when it says that when Jesus is talking to his disciples about him leaving, he says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things into your remembrance whatsoever I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So the peace here that Jesus Christ is bringing is not of this world. And to the world, the, the lack of conflict is peace. And, and that's how we, we generally describe and talk about peace is just simply the, the lack of contact, the lack of conflict. But the fact is, is that we will never have a lack of, lack of conflict. There was a war in heaven. There was conflict in heaven. And if there can be conflict in heaven, <laughs> there can be conflict anywhere. So the, the answer is, is that external peace is not the point. Jesus, the Jews were expecting Jesus to come and make external peace with Rome, right? To, to be able to kick Rome out and to have external peace. However, this is not the kind of sword that Jesus was talking about. And in fact, it wasn't even a violent sword. So we're talking about something completely different. And you're right. We've talked about this over and over again in different ways. Um, you know, the war in heaven, that wasn't a violent war like what we think about today, because you know, as spirit beings, we we can't kill each other. We're not we're not up there like slicing off spiritual hands. You know, that's not the way this works, but this does get very much into in Ephesians where it says that we, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual hosts of wickedness, the war in heaven. It's still raging today. And those who know the true Messiah perceive who the real enemy is. So we have to ask ourselves like what kind of defenses and weapons we have, but this also gets into the armor of God analogies where the ultimately the sword of the spirit is the only weapon that we have. And so that sword that comes along that is being bathed in the heaven, 
We also have analogy that this is the Spirit. This is the Holy Ghost. This is the Comforter that is coming. But that Comforter, like with Cherubim's sword, also cuts away. It lets the dross go out, right? And so what I love here is that in section 121, we also have a kind of another allusion to allusion to the sword when it says that we are commanded to reprove betimes with sharpness. So there's that allusion to the sword when moved upon by the Holy Ghost and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love towards him who we've reproved lest he esteem thee to be thine enemy. And it's this reproof, Ben, that when you talk, when you, when you brought up chastened, this is what made me think of this is that when we are reproved, that's that chastening that's going on. And we talked about Moroni, about how the Lord reproved Moroni twice. Once when he was complaining about writing, and once again in Moroni, in Mormon 7, when he's complaining about the Gentiles not having enough charity. And the Lord reproves him twice, but we ta- also talked about in that podcast about how in that reproof, it's actually a liberation. It's, a, it's, a, it's alleviating and liberating him from his ego that's causing him that grief. So when we come here, a lot of the times, and this is uh, this is when I was writing this particular post for uh, for December twenty fourth about the Prince of Peace, I wrote. It says many times we confuse our lashing out from the moments of our attacked ego, or our bruised pride, or our pious certainty, and the feeling that we need to respond to someone calling into question that we might actually know as much as we think we know, and we often confuse that that. That knee-jerk reaction is the prompting of the Holy Ghost. You know, we lash out on a perceived wrongdoer or a false believer, and we call this spiritual reproof. So like the prodigal son's brother or the first-hour laborers, we equate our unsettled and our heightened emotional sense of injustice to being moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And the tirade of words that usually follow from that emotional outburst, we call that spiritual reproof. So any seeming, any seeming like showing forward an increase of love to, to the reproved is usually an ego-induced justification in letting the accused know just how wrong they were for being wrong. And in our last valiant effort to trump our dominance over the reproved, we respond to any pain that we've inflicted in a callous disregard of, yeah, well, the wicked and guilty taketh the truth to be hard. And we forget, though, that DNC 121 tells us that any effort that we have to reprove has to be done in the spirit of persuasion, of long-suffering, of gentleness, meekness, love unfeigned, kindness, and pure knowledge. That without those principles and virtues, there is no reproof, there is no chastisement. And we saw that in Moroni. So yeah, that when you bring that up and you talk about that, when you, brought, when you talk about that chastisement as a punishment— No, like the Lord was not punishing Moroni. When the Lord chastises, when the Lord, when that, when the Holy Ghost is truly the Holy Ghost, when we are truly using the sword of the spirit for reproof, we are doing it in a spirit of love and of persuasion and gentleness and meekness and kindness and pure knowledge. Anything else is just our own ego induced rant. Correct. <laughs> There's so much more to say about section one. I I absolutely love this entire thing. Oh, one one thing I did want to also bring up, Ben, and and you tell me what you think. But there is this section in verse thirty five 
where it says, I am, I am no respecter of persons and will that all men shall know that the day must speedily cometh. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand when peace shall be taken from the earth and the devil shall have power over his own dominion. Mm-hmm. I have that marked. <laughs> <laughs> so we, so, you know, this is Latter-day Peace Studies. You know, we have this podcast specifically for the purpose of kind of the, the angle of establishing peace, of bringing out the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of this peace unto all men, the, the peace that God brings us. We don't focus like we did back in the LDS Liberty days or back in the old political days that you and I have both been in, where we focus primarily on external liberty and freedom. And we've largely shifted into talking about how really coming into a relationship with God in our own specific personal moments with God and sitting with that is not only what just changes and changes and brings peace in our lives, but it spills over and brings peace into other people's lives. So if the Lord is taking peace away from the earth, is he taking peace away from the earth, do you think? Or is this a natural consequence? And if peace is taken from the earth, what part can we play in bringing it back? So this is, uh, there's a lot of times in the scriptures, and I've talked about it multiple times, when a passive voice is used. And so we often infer the Lord is doing something when it doesn't say that he is. So it says, peace shall be taken from the earth and the devil shall have power over his own dominion. So it doesn't say the Lord is doing the taking of peace from the earth. Now, um, you know, this actually kind of fits in with what Christ was saying when he says, you know, think not that I'm come to bring peace, but the sword, because here in the next verse, it says, and also the Lord shall have power over his saints and shall reign in their midst and shall come down in judgment upon Ijmea or the world. So basically what I see um, being described in these verses is that as, as the righteous are turned turn to follow the example of Christ and are, are seeking to build Zion, um, what's going to happen is that the world will become increasingly antagonistic towards that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the wicked destroy the wicked, the wicked are, are stirred up uh, unto anger, but the Lord will be with his saints and reign in their midst, it says. Um, historically, we, we could pin this on a lot of things. You know, uh, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's particularly useful to do it, except to say that, um, it does seem obvious that, um, there was quite a bit of global contention, um, starting from the civil war, um, Crimean war time, um, especially escalating in world war one and world war two type of conflicts in, in the 20th century, um, mass scale war and death, um, that has that is to our historical knowledge uh, is unprecedented um, in the history of the world. So um, you could contextualize this within that, um, but I don't think it's necessary to do that. Um, I think that uh, we could look at war as, as sort of the effect, um, but here we see what's happening to the hearts of men, so to speak, right? That they are becoming increasingly antagonistic, full of hate, um, 
this is uh, it, we come towards the mid to late uh, 1800s, 19th century. This is the march of nationalism um, when you have an increase in um, you have uniting of, of certain peoples, but uh, an increase in a type of enmity um, between nations because. Uh, this these national bonds get formed, and so that this is sort of the build up towards what ends up happening in World War One and World War Two. But but again, those are all effects, not not causes. Um, and I I don't see the Lord, you know, he doesn't even take credit for it here, causing this uh, withdrawal of peace. He's uh, simply saying this is what's going to happen. You know, I, the Lord, knowing the calamity that should come upon the earth, this is what's going to happen, but I will not abandon you. I will be here. Verse 36, the Lord shall have power over his saints and shall reign in their midst. And so I see this as saying to the saints, you guys ain't seen nothing yet, right? (laughs) Things are going to get really, really bad, but don't believe for a second that just because Satan seems to be having power in the world that the Lord has withdrawn his power or influence from the world at all. He has not. He is here and he his work is going forward um, despite what you see happening in the world. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. You know, one of the things I've noticed too, as I've talked about the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes or Zion over the last 10 years is that culturally there's this argument that is always thrown back when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, because it's so difficult. <laughs> I mean, when you, if we really take the Sermon on the Mount to heart, we're like, do you really mean that? Is, I mean, is that, is that what you really mean? But as I've talked with people, this the typical response that I get after really going deep with the sermon is the response that, yeah, isn't it good, though, that we don't have to really live that right now? You know, that'll, that we'll live that when Jesus comes again. You know, right now, peace is, this verse is invoked. Peace is taken from the earth. We don't live in that life. That's going to happen after Jesus comes and cleanses and purges all the wicked. But they need to read the next verse. And and that's really why, and this kind of seems blasphemous. It's not as half as blasphemous as as I make it sound. But when I really analyzed what that belief means, that it really is just something that's going to happen in a few, that Jesus is going to take care of it. I was like, so you mean to tell me that you believe in a God that's given you so little power. He's given you no doctrine to be able to conquer evil and that it's given you no ability to be able to overcome the wickedness of the world unless God comes to literally kill everybody who's wicked and then personally institutes his own program. Like that, that's the God that we worship. Just the, biggest I just, bully. And, and once I put it yeah. in those, he's just the biggest bully, right? He's just the one who can come down with the most power to kill the most people. And he's like, Oh yeah. Then if God's truth and if God's principle and if God's revealed doctrine in the sermon is so weak that it can't be lived unless he's the biggest bully to let it happen, that he keeps all the bad things happen so everybody can live it underneath his pavilion. I mean, so either he gave us a pathetic doctrine that doesn't mean anything or, and and he's power and he gave us, so we're powerless to do anything on our own 
or he's just the biggest bully. And I'm like, what a pathetic God. And then I started to recognize, I'm like, and no, what and would you're be right. the purpose it, of giving it. Yeah. Right. So here we have, and I love that you brought up verse 36. I mean, obviously it's the next verse, but it's that peace is taken from the earth, but that's not where we stop reading this section. We've got to read the next verse that the Lord has power over his saints that, and, and I love this cause I've been reading over the last several days on the Zon Zion's camp and especially in sections 101, 103 and 105, there is so much beatitude language in there about the Lord trying to get him into it, you know, salt of the earth and light of the world talk. And you can tell how the Lord's trying to get the people to do, uh, come into this relationship with him and this beatitude relationship. And all of a sudden they're like, let's go to war. And you have Sidney Rigdon and going out and preaching this fiery sermon to go like purge the, go purge Missouri. <laughs> mm, and yeah. it's just funny to see how God's trying to reveal this beatitude sermon on the Mount way, like he did the Nephites or the, at least the people in the Americas and to his followers in, in uh, the ancient world. And even to us today, and even the saints today were like, it just completely went over their heads, but it's here in the text. So one of the things I'm really excited for this year is to start getting into finding out where all of that beatitude language is starting to come out of the text. Because when it comes through the voice of Joseph, sometimes it's hard to find because Joseph really does talk in a very transactional prescriptive way. That's just, I mean, that's the world he grew up in. That's the world he knew. That's the language he knew. And God revealed himself through that language. But a lot of the times when we read the Doctrine and Covenants, we read it as though that's God's language, that that's the language that God's trying to get us to, to live. That's the only way we can interpret God. But when we, but my goal here is that this year we can start to see a lot like we did the Book of Mormon to bring out the element of that transformative God that is more descriptive than prescriptive. And that through that relationship, we can kind of maybe start to say, hey, this is probably a little bit of Joseph Smith in that kind of Methodist Americana that he was living in. And this is what God's always been trying to reveal as a perennial truth. And then to see what we can get from that conversation. Cause I think there's a lot of great stuff there about how God's always trying to bring about Zion and about how Zion can literally be established in any generation. And so like every generation is the generation that's going to bring about Zion if it, if it wants to. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm even seeing, you know, in in uh, current happenings and events, there's quite a bit of frustration uh, among people about uh, the way things should be politically, right? And and so there's um a lot of debate and discussion about that, and <clears throat> there's often expressed. Uh, frustration about the the state and what we're supposed to do about it. And uh, from those who have uh, made covenants to uh, establish Zion, it, it does seem kind of odd to me that there would be so much consternation over what Babylon is doing, um, that we would be so focused and, and so caught up in the ways of Babylon that uh, we forget to dedicate all of our focus and energy and efforts upon the establishment of Zion. 
Yeah. That's a good way of saying that. Well, Ben, if you don't have anything else, um, next week we are going into talking about Joseph Smith's history. So we're going to be talking about the first half of Joseph Smith's history, and then we have the second week after that. We're going to be talking about the second half of it and then going forward from there. But man, there's there's so much good stuff to talk about with the first vision and about Joseph's coming into that relationship and, and kind of the context by which Joseph Smith grew up. I think we'll have a really good discussion. There is. Um, it's actually a little bit intimidating as I'm thinking more about it. We're going to have to uh, figure out how to how to really uh, zo- you know zoom in and and concentrate on on what uh, what we're trying to pull out here. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be a fun adventure. Well, thank everybody for listening. Thank you for being uh, a part of us. That's weird. Thank you for being a part of this and for uh, and for taking your time. And we look forward to your comments and for any other feedback that you have. But until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peters. Thank you for listening. <laughs>